This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I don't know about you, but even though there's unlimited information available online, I tend to learn best by doing things and actually getting my hands dirty. If you're interested in making the leap from screens to the land, then I've got some exciting learning events for you. I'm going to be teaching two of my favorite subjects this upcoming autumn at the Green Rebel Farm in beautiful Miravet, Spain. The first course is a weekend intensive on regenerative agroforestry designed for people who want to try their hands at a range of different tree planting and orchard maintenance skills. We'll cover the whole range from reading a landscape and propagating plants, to planning a planting project, getting trees in the ground, maintaining a growing system, and even pruning a grown forest. The best part is that all of these are based on activities to advance a real farm. The second event is a five-day deep dive into the regenerative design process, again with a focus on agroforestry. This course is designed for people who are either considering buying land or who are at the early stages of developing a site and want to ensure that they get off on a profitable regenerative trajectory. We'll work through the scale of permanence, learning to gather essential information about the landscape, vegetation, and soil. From there, we'll work through hydrological capture and restoration, planning for productive planting and reforestation, business considerations, soil health regeneration, and much more. All of this, too, will be taught through hands-on activities, so you leave not only knowing how to develop an effective and profitable design, but also with experience with the work and skills required to get things done. This weekend agroforestry intensive will be from Friday the 16th through Sunday the 18th of September. And the design workshop goes from Tuesday the 11th to Sunday the 16th of October. So don't start your project with digital learning alone. Come and get your hands dirty with inspiring, like-minded people and level up your skills this autumn. You can learn more by clicking at the link at regenerativeskills.com or on the link tree in the bio on our Instagram. Early bird discounts are now open, so don't hesitate. And I'll see you in the orchard soon. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hey everybody, and welcome to a special episode of this ongoing series focused on tree planting and agroforestry. Now so far, I've done a lot of interviews talking about tree and perennial systems, and we've mostly looked at things from a macro perspective. But today we're going to take a closer look at one of the most incredible families of plants that are present in the majority of temperate ecologies around the world. And this is the family of Quercus, more commonly known as oaks. Here to give us a window into the undervalued world of oak trees, as well as a glimpse into how humans have formed relationships and uses for this incredible plant that have shaped our own cultures and evolutionary trajectory, is Byron Joel an internationally recognized author, media presenter, and leader in the field of ecological agriculture. Now, for over 15 years, he's worked, consulted, designed, and taught across four continents. In 2011, he was resident manager of horticulture at the Permaculture Research Institute of Australia, and in 2012, he transitioned to that same position at the Sister Institute in New Zealand. 
He has over a thousand hours teaching and presenting on regenerative agriculture in Australia, the US, Africa, and New Zealand. Now, Byron also acts as the managing consultant for Oak Tree Designs, assisting the greater eco-agricultural movement as systems designer and consultant, focusing on the Mediterranean regions of his home nation, Australia, where he advocates for a greater recognition, honoring, and implementation of indigenous Australian land stewardship practices. Now, this is a very special episode, much the same as last week, because it comes from one of my favorite episodes from one of my favorite podcasts, The Plant Report, with my dear friend, Jill Cloutier. The Plant Report is an educational podcast about plants, herbal medicine, ethnobotany, and the human-plant relationship, highlighting the fact that every plant has a story. Now, Jill has such a wealth of knowledge and love for plants herself that when she gets together with others to talk about the wonderful world of vegetative life, you can always count on podcast magic. Now, since I can hardly hope to improve on Jill's exceptional interviewing style from her two shows, The Plant Report and Sustainable World Radio, I reached out to ask if she would allow me to rebroadcast her session with Byron, and she generously agreed. Now, Jill and I, along with our friend and colleague Scott Mann from the Permaculture Podcast, have teamed up to form the Regenerative Media Alliance, a union of independent media producers working to broadcast regenerative solutions around the world. And if you're interested in learning from seasoned pros in independent regenerative media production, be sure to stick around until the end where I'll share some more information about this alliance and give you an early sign-up information for the RMA's Professional Development Conference. Now, in the meantime, let's get back into this fascinating world of oak trees, and I'll hand things over to Jill Cloutier and Byron Joel. Our guest today is Byron Joel, horticulturist, permaculture designer and teacher, and a practitioner of eco-agricultural regeneration with a focus on Mediterranean climate regions. Byron is the founder of Oak Tree Designs in Perth, Australia. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show, Byron. It's great to talk with you today. Thanks for having me, Jill. Yeah, it's good that we eventually managed to catch up without all the technical difficulties and Sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or lack this is take three for those who don't know. <laughs> I think there was a big storm, then it was the sleep, and now here we are. So let's knock on wood that we continue on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're going to be talking about oak trees today and the importance of oaks. And can you um, tell our listeners the Latin name of oaks, and then we'll just kind of dive into this topic. Sure thing. Uh, the Latin name for oak is Quercus. And then within the genus of Quercus, there's about 800 species, give or take, wow. um, from all around the world, mostly the Northern Hemisphere. But I believe there may be some that go past the equatorial line in Mexico. Um, and once upon a time, there, there was a, the Lithocarpus genus, which is a very closely related genus in the um, Fagaceae or Fagaceae family in Southeast Asia and China, which is kind of like a, a tropical, subtropical oak, which is really interesting for people to look into. Um, so, yeah, they're all, all around the world, in the Northern Hemisphere at least, and now they've been taken all around the world in the Southern Hemisphere to Antipodean lands like Australia and South Africa and South America with uh, colonial movement. And um, they're one of my favorite, they are my favorite tree in the world. And there's a fair few to choose from. 
Okay, well, you named your business Oak Tree Design, so I, I figured it was important to you. And I, I know you grew up shaded by an oak, a hundred-year-old oak, I believe, in Perth, Australia. Yeah. And yeah. was being close to that tree part of what um, kind of initially inspired your fascination and appreciation for oak trees? Yeah, indeed. And I, I wonder, I'm not exactly sure what it was, but I mean, in Australia where it's dominated by eucalyptus and other Australian native trees, which are famously kind of tough and, and hard and, and fire or pyrophytic. You know, they, they burn really well. In fact, they're designed to burn. Um, whenever you have a big, beautiful, old, established, lush, um, deciduous tree, from the Northern Hemisphere, it, it kind of stands out. And this um, old English oak, we caught it in English oak. It may actually have been a hybrid. I assume it was, but big, deciduous, leafy green English oak in my yard. It just had this huge presence. It was kind of like the totem, the totem entity of the house in which I grew up in. And I just, yeah, the it kind of marked the seasons of the of that house we obviously lost its leaves in the winter time and it it had its catkins burst out in in spring and then its beautiful leafy green growth in the late spring and and the the kind of parasol that it would create in the summertime and and shade the whole place and then in late summer and autumn the the acorns would start falling and the character you know there's such character in those acorns with their little caps on them and and all the little seedling oaks that would pop up in the garden and it's funny I've never seen that happen before but that tree it would be like one in a thousand or so seedlings would be pure white Mm. like the leaves would be pure white and the stems would be pure white and like you know some of my earliest memories of my dad just as baby boomer men seem to obsess over just <laughs> raking leaves <laughs> constantly, you know, they just can't handle the idea of a single leaf being in the wrong spot. So it, was, it drove him nuts. In fact, I think it's half the reason he sold the, the place. It's interesting the different relationship that you had with the tree and then your dad. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I remember saying to it one day when I was probably about, I don't know, five or six. I remember actually vocalizing that I said to it something along the lines of, I think you and I have some work to do together. And I, it really, it kind of gives me goosebumps to look, look back on that. I don't know what I did or didn't know or didn't feel, but I, it came out of my mouth. And uh, it, yeah, it kind of stuck with me and it's formed, it has become like my own emblem, my own totem for what it represents, everything that it signifies. That's a wonderful, wonderful description of that tree and your relationship with the tree. I don't know how it felt about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably like that's the guy that doesn't break up our leaves and seedlings. Yeah. <laughs> we like him. So, so you mentioned a bit where oaks are found around the world. And what is, yeah. can you describe to our listeners, what are some natural oak habitats? There's a kind of temperate a band of temperate latitudes in the northern hemisphere so it would probably be like from 30 30 to 40 degrees latitude to something like down to 25 
something like that. Anyway, um, so all the way from far Western Europe in, in the UK, you know, they've got the f famous English oak, and that's a very moist, temperate, non-brittle climate. Although that English oak seems to be uh, very, very happy to grow in Mediterranean climates as well. And, and very closely related to and similar looking to other deciduous Mediterranean type oaks like the canary oak and those kind of those kind of oaks and then you, you get these different forms of deciduous oak um, in in Europe and Asia that are all very similar to each other in lots of ways and they kind of just run along this temperate band and they change, you know, of course they change. They change in species. But they also, they hybridize readily. So a lot of the time you get this kind of, instead of just like a, a hard boundary between two species of oak, you'll get like a blurring of genetics in between them. Um, but then there are also the, the species of oak that grow in the, the relative drylands. So, for instance, one of my favourite things in the world, which anyone who's ever heard me rant about anything will be sick of hearing about, that's the dehesa in Spain. <laughs> so the, the dehesa or dehesa systems or montado systems in Portuguese is 4 million hectares of semi-domesticated oak savanna in Spain and Portugal and a little bit in Greece, I believe, as well. And... Um, th those those oak overstand um, a grassland upon which um, agriculturalists run their stock animals, and then they will grow certain crops within within the pasture land as well. But largely, it's for the the raising of of stock animals, um, cattle. In fact, the the merino sheep, which is so famous in Australia, is is native to that region of, of Spain uh, from the Dehesa. The oak species there are Quercus suba, which is the cork oak, which is famous for its bark, its thick, spongy bark, which is um, most commonly known as the to create the corks in wine bottles, which has been phased out, obviously, in the last 10 or so years with the screw-top bottles. But... Um, cork has a million other applications, and and it, it, I believe it's making a comeback. Anyway, um, the cork uh, has plenty of applications like flooring, and um, they make a kind of faux leather out of it for for um, bags and clothing and stuff. Oh my gosh, it would be great to replace pleather with cork. Yeah, well, I. I think it's it's going to be huge. Like I think cork cork products are one big marketing push away from making a serious comeback. Cork flooring is amazing. I don't know if anyone's ever walked on cork floors. Um, yeah, I worked at a green dance. living store probably twenty years ago, and they were selling cork tiles, and it's so quiet and nice and and soft and peaceful. Yeah, and um, insulation for roofs and. I mean, I, I, I've had a video somewhere on my hard drive where I drove through the world's largest cork plantation in, um, in northern Morocco. And so there's, there's a lot of these systems kind of sitting around dormant. 
And um, I wrote a post about this just the other day that in the global financial crisis of 2008, uh, to, to, to deal with, to fight back from the, um, the uh, economic conditions they found themselves in, um, Spain and Portugal got very, very creative with, you know, investing in and, and augmenting certain industries. And one of them was the eco-agricultural tourism and they rebooted their the Dehesa. Their, their, they rebooted their um, commitment to land stewardship for the Dehesa. So they kind of protected it and established maintenance programs. And now they've, you know, they're, they're rebooting their cork economy. And I mean, this this system has so many extra yields of of you know honey and and quality animal high high quality premium animal products. I mean the 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 pork that comes from these um, these systems from where the pigs eat the acorns is, I believe, the highest priced animal product, food product in Europe, be, um, below beluga caviar, and you know honey, and then the whole um, ecological aspect, like um, hiking tours and bird watching and hunting, and then the agricultural, like foodie tourism of of people coming to see the the um the old traditional methods of doing this and that um so yeah that's really promising and it's part of the rewilding europe program where they're really they're fostering the the breeding of iberian lynx i mean these systems are just to die for if you, they if people want to see a really beautiful um video on my website there's a tab sorry in the article section of my website which is oaktreedesigns.com.au there's an article called Dehesa Australis and near the top of that article there's this video and it's a kind of five minute clip of just drone footage and whatnot of the Dehesa and it's very very beautiful it's what it's what I would like every agricultural landscape to look like give or take and so basically the Dehesa then, if I'm getting this right, because I haven't really heard of heard of it until I did some research for this interview. So is it like a semi-domesticated kind of mm. savanna landscape where you're working with the trees that are there? Or do you plant the trees or how does that work? Well, that's right. So it's mm-hmm. semi-domesticated because of its scale. It's so damn huge. The management of it becomes very hands-off. Um, you know, you can't intensively manage 4 million hectares. So it does become semi-domesticated, semi-wild. So it's used for human. Um, humans use it, but it is semi-wild as well. And you know it's semi-wild when you have apex predators like, I know they have lynx. I don't know if there's wolf or bear or anything in there. I don't think there's bear in the Iberian Peninsula, except maybe through the Pyrenees, but that's a different discussion. But um, yes, so it's thousands of years old. They've done different pollen um, research, and they've they realise that it's been around in some form for I think four thousand years. And you know, I think once upon a time they, there was more like the grapes growing there, and there was more this and less that. But it's been in its current something like its current form on and off for 4,000 years, I believe, if I remember correctly. I'll I'll pause quickly to point people to a really great book called, if anyone's interested in oak, this is like the quintessential oak nerd book. 
with like a really great balance of science and narrative and just interesting historical tidbits. It's called Oak, the Framing of Civilization uh, by a chap called something Logan. I've, I've gone blank. But Mr. I'll look Logan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, that's a good title. It encompasses yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah, and it really does go into amazing detail about Oak all the way back to the beginning. Um, the, so, yeah, the Dehesa, they manage it largely. It's The management is, is the way the animals move, are moved through there has a lot to do with how it's managed. You know, in a in a kind of holistic management and intensive rotational grazing way, they it's so big um, that they can move animals through in a certain way that um, allows the grasslands to recover. Um, and then there is management of the cork system. So I believe a cork tree will start yielding after about fifteen to twenty twenty five years, and they they harvest the bark on a nine year cycle. Uh, there's wildfire, which is a natural occurrence in all Mediterranean climate regions and has been a part of fire stick agricultural, the, you know, the land stewarding, stewarding techniques of traditional peoples in, in many places around the world. Um, and I believe that it's used as a management tool currently. And then there's, um, to allow for the regeneration of, of oak. I believe they there's these, in fact, I'm ordering some in now. I'm in talks with this company in Spain about um, setting up a, a trade partnership to get them to Australia. They're called Protector Cactus Tree Guards, and they're, they're awesome. They're like a, a galvanized steel cage with spikes sticking out so the, the, it, the, the stock animals don't go anywhere near it and allows these baby trees to grow into big trees happily. And um, then you, you can like lift them up so the bottom is exposed and then the, the stock animals will do all the like weed whacking and lawn mowing around the bottom and they're really neat. I like them. And so is this something that um, it's mostly oak, that the deasa is usually an oak kind of woodland oh, or is it other well, trees as well? Uh, the, I mean, in terms of the... The canopy, the established canopy. I mean, first, let's start with off with savanna. Like, so what? What is the biome of the Dehesa? It's a savanna. So, a, a biome is the name we give to describe certain ecological communities and the dynamics that they create. And you can have different. You can have uh, the same biome around the world with different species. So like a desert is a biome and there's plenty of deserts with different species around the world, but they've got characteristic similarities and wetlands are biomes, et cetera, et cetera. So the savanna is a grassland system, mm -hmm. which is forested very lightly. So, I, I, you know, anywhere from kind of like a, a tree every 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 metres um, so that's about like, I think eight a hectare, eight, eight trees a hectare or something like that. And savannas are often the result of an environment where you have a, a, um, strong trophic, um, 
where your, your trophic levels are all occupied what, up, up to the point where you have large grazing herbivores and the predators that prey upon them. So I won't go too far into how it gets there, but it does. And a good example would be the oak, sorry, the savannas of um, like the Serengeti in Africa, where you've got these big plant grass plains and then you've got acacia trees popping up out of them. So, this, so the Dehesa is a savanna of grasslands overstood by oak species, the cork we've spoken about. The other one is Quercus ilex, which is the holm oak, which in many ways is very similar to the cork, but it, it doesn't have that bark. But it, they're, they're both evergreen oaks, and they've both got kind of prickly leaves. Quercus ilex has particularly prickly leaves, and ilex is the Latin name for holly. And so their leaves actually resemble the holly, the prickly holly leaves. Those two trees, they represent the vast majority of the climax canopy species in that savanna system. There may be others. I'm not familiar with them if there are in terms of the canopy species, but there's plenty of understory. Like it's a whole, it's a whole complete, more or less complete ecological trophic system with your I mean, savannas are characteristically the two standout features are the the canopy trees, over, lightly stocked, overstanding the the rangelands, the grasses, but also you've got all like the shrubs and herbs and everything else growing as well. So there is a real understory. So going layers, off. layers of plants. Correct, and it's worth noting as well that the type of trees that oaks are they need a kind of um, successional, they, they need to pop, they only grow where they can grow, right? So it's rare to see an oak seedling, an acorn just germinating way out in the middle of a field somewhere and then surviving the weather and surviving the animals and make growing into a, a big uh, climax oak. You know, often often but not always, they require a bit of a nursing environment where a squirrel or a, a, a jay or something will take an acorn from an oak tree and, and into the shrubs, you know, some perhaps prickly species of little acacia or some other shrub where it makes its home and then the acorn gets forgotten and it gets covered in duff and then it germinates and it's in this great little nursing environment you know it's re it's relatively moist it's relatively um, free from winds da 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 it's got shade for the summer and by the time it's big enough to pop its head out from beneath this the cover of its shrubby nursery its roots are really well established and it it can go for it you know it could, then it just takes off it sounds so cozy <laughs> Doesn't it though? It does. Um, in this, the dehesa, um, it's funny because it's semi-domesticated, you get a kind of, you, the human management uh, errs the system in a certain direction. So while you do have oaks um, next to each other or within proximity to each other, they are spaced further apart. And while you do have oaks coming up, within communities of these kind of understory plants it, it's tidier than that usually so yeah it's um 
there's a lot of different oak, so they can all do very different things. So the deasa, is that something that you think could be replicated in different Mediterranean, I would assume, Mediterranean climate zones around the world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, and it, it is being. Um, at the bottom of that article I wrote, there's a, there's a bunch of links to um, the work of Dr. Ima Fare with this West Australian Agricultural Department. She's a uh, doctor of agronomy, majoring in cereal production. And she's Spanish, and she went and initiated a trial for dehesa. So while it's very slow going, it, it has been planted and started, and, and it's in the system, so to speak, which makes it way easier to then maneuver and leverage. Um, there's a really good PDF available out there. I can't remember the actual title of it. I do have it on a hard drive somewhere, but it's, it's a research paper with about five or six different authors, but it's about um, using endemic Californian oak savanna woodlands to recreate a dehesalite model in California. Hmm. That's a great, that's one of the best publications on the dehesa I've found. Maybe you could send me a link to that or I could upload the PDF. Yeah. So, I'm, yeah, yeah. you know, the more you're talking about this, the more I'm reminded of Tending the Wild, that book where yes. the native California Native Americans tend the wild. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in many places around the world, the Americas and Australia in included, when European colonial forces arrived, they didn't have the eyes to recognize the systems they were looking at because it's, it was just so removed from what they called agriculture. And uh, when Europeans got to California for the first time, they found the Native American Californians eating acorns a great deal, and it was actually considered to be the like, last great Balano culture. Balano culture or Balata culture uh, is describing the culture of people who live off oak mainly, or in part. And once upon a time, if, if your genetic heritage is from the Northern Hemisphere, whether it's Europe or even North Africa, Asia, North America, then, then you are pretty much, you're genetically programmed to eat acorns. Like mm. it's, it's, I consider oak, and this is the thing, like, this is the connection. Acorns are human food. It's like so far as we are designed to eat anything, we're designed to eat oak. That's what we do. Um, and can you imagine the, the bounty? Anyone that's seen a full-grown oak tree, particularly in a big um, mast year, bumper crop year, how much fruit it throws off. I mean, it's, it's tons of uh, carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Most people I know do not think of acorns as something that they would eat. Tell us a bit about why you think acorns are a really viable food crop. For a number of reasons. I feel like we are genetically um, aligned to do so. I mean, Europeans at least. I mean, we Homo sapiens was meant... Uh, is conventionally agreed to have been in Europe for the last 50,000 years. So for however many thousands of years we were there, we were eating acorns up until we started farming grain. 
and even before that, before Europe, we were Middle East and North Africa, and there was a there was oak around as well. So there's that, and then the fact that they are such a I mean, before when I when I mentioned that oak have become my kind of personal totem traditionally in symbolism they are they represent robustness and abundance and they are exactly that they're incredibly robust and they're incredibly abundant they're forth giving with their yield of acorns so one that's a whole discussion of perennial food crops and in particular perennial staple crops so very quickly a staple crop a staple crop is a type of food that an organism needs the most of bulk to survive. And for humans and most omnivorous mammals, that's carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Um, that's just what we need bulk of to get by. You know, carbohydrates for, for fuel, fats for another type of fuel, and um, because certain um, micronutrients and whatnot are only fat-soluble, and then what was the other one? Proteins, that which our body uses as just the raw building blocks of tissue. And so, in our world, we have this kind of like monolithic industrial scale agriculture, and we grow our staple crops like corn and maize and and wheat and other grain crops, barley and oats and and rice in the east, and they're all annuals, and annual crops they're quite energy expensive because every year you've got to till the soil and weed the soil and then plant the seed and then nurse the seed and then then it grows and you may or may not get the right rains at the right time and then you know you harvest it and you thresh it and you da 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 da, -da. it's a pretty expensive exercise high maintenance it, plants it's a high maintenance plant yeah through throughout its entire life cycle and it's also um, ecologically degrading at least the way we do it but anyway the beauty of the oak tree as a as a prime example of a perennial staple crop is that and this is indicative of most things that are of any value. It, 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 they are expensive to establish, economically or ecologically expensive to establish. You know, for, to establish a, a, an oak tree, you have to baby it somewhat for the first however many years of its life. You know, you you put the oak in a pot or in the soil, and you've got to water it, and you've got to protect it from animals and maybe a bit of a windbreak and then in summer it might need a little bit of an extra watering maybe you repeat that for the first few years and if you're trying to establish hundreds or thousands of these things that becomes quite a you know time consuming and resource consuming but once they're established you know and with an oak depending on species and environment that may be anywhere from two to five years once they're established they're incredibly robust their roots are deep in the soil and they withstand winds and, and many of them are resistant to wildfires and what have you. And then once they're in adulthood and they start fruiting, they, they are incredible. They just drop tons of fruit or food and they have this three, two or three or four year cycle 
I called them a, a mast cycle or a bumper crop, some people call it, where they, for, for like two years, they'll, they'll drop their acorns as normal. And then every kind of third or so year, there'll be this huge flush of fruit where you'll get like triple what they would normally. And that's an enormous quantity of food. And they do that to kind of um, to throw off and regulate the populations of the animals that feed upon them, like squirrels and jays and stuff. So then in those kind of systems, you have these very, very robust, stable, huge tree species, plant species that need virtually no maintenance or management after that, um, dropping tons upon tons of high-quality staple food every year. When you, when you put it yeah. that way, it, it makes total sense. But you, can you eat any acorns raw? You have to prepare them, right, and leach out um, tannins, yeah. I believe? That's that's right. So it's a question of the tannins, I believe. That's about it. So tannins are hydrocarbon, um, a family of hydrocarbon molecules, um, very common as secondary compounds in plants. Um, I think they're used to deter um, herbivory, um, and they've they've got some like immune immune functions for the plant and whatnot. But when a mammal eats too many tannins, it I believe it inhibits the digestion of proteins and becomes toxic. Some animals can handle more than others, like a pig can handle a fair bit. And in fact, most animals benefit from some percentage of tannins in their diet, but it's very low, around mm -hmm. the 1% mark, I think. So there are... Um, so virtually all acorns need some degree of processing and it would involve something along the lines of collecting the acorns, roasting them, shelling them, um, crushing them, and then leaching the crushed acorn in fresh water for a few days so that the tannins, which are water-soluble, leach out. And once you've, got, once you've done all that, you're left with a, a meal or flour that's very, very edible and has a lot of energy in it. it. Sounds like you've tried this flower. What does it taste like? I've never tried it. Yeah, I've tried it. It's, um, it's kind of renowned for being very tasteless. Mm. So it doesn't have a whole lot of flavor, but it was used as like a thickener in soups or, or um, you know, to make cakes and it, you'd add salts or honey or sweetener or something. But... What it, what it is also famous for is being really full of energy. And, you know, all the anecdote, I don't know what scientific studies have been done with, you know, the, the slow-release GI of the, the carbs and starches or whatnot. I'm not sure about any of that. I'd be interested to know. But the, um, the, all the anecdote that I've heard and my personal experience is that you can eat some of this stuff and it'll keep you going for a very long time. Like it, it'll, 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 it's light. It doesn't make you feel over full or heavy. Like if you ate cake or something, um, but that it'll keep you going for ages. In fact, it's suggested that, have you ever read Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Probably seen the movie. Most <laughs> people have. Yeah. Read the books well, too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Me too. Um, there was the elven bread. So when, when the, the hobbits went through Lothlorien 
they were gifted a bunch of things by these elves, including these these elven breads or elven cakes, and uh, they kept, they were very light and and crumbly, and they were full of energy and kept them going all day. And I've read that it's suggested that Tolkien was actually re- making a reference to oak bread hmm. through that. Love yeah. Those, but- yeah. If it's good enough for Galadriel, it's good enough for me. Um, so acorns, then, they're reliable, abundant, and are they storable? Do they store well if you have uh, this yes. huge crop? They do. And um, yes, that's right. From my understanding, okay, so, so back to the tannins. There are, within the oak genus, the Quercus genus, there's all these different species, and the tannin levels of the acorns throughout those species varies a lot and then it can also vary within species of different varieties in fact like part of the dehesa australis project is about finding recognizing all of the best tree crops for um, dehesa analogs and within the oak genus that's looking for good species of oak that are precocious and that, you know, they have a high yield and they're hardy and da-da-da-da, and the ones that are low tannin. There, there are rumours of these, these, these oak species or particular trees or varieties within a species that are so low in tannins that you can just pick up an acorn off the ground and eat it like a chestnut. Wow. So there's like a collection of acorns like... My kind of top five low tannin acorns are from Quercus ilex, the holm oak, Quercus suba, the uh, cork oak, Quercus bicolor, the swamp white oak, Quercus alba, the white oak, and Quercus macrocarpa, the burr oak, and not in any particular order. The final thing with tannins is that, yes, you can store them, and my understanding is that the indigenous peoples of any Bolano cultures, they would prepare the acorns of the species with low tannins in that season. And then they would store the acorns of higher tannin species for seasons to come because tannins are also a preservative. So the higher tannin acorns would be stored in, in uh, caches and the cake, like, you know, packed in mud or clay and stored underground in a cool place. Um, and occasionally you find, you know, you have archaeological digs and they'll find caches of, of acorns, you know, through the Americas and, and, you know, Japan and Korea. A couple of years ago there was these big acorn caches discovered in Korea. Um, yeah. It's fascinating. It is. I know oaks are long-lived, so what a valuable food crop um, if you have this tree living for hundreds of years. Well, that's where, you know, like I feel like my personal totem is the oak tree because of its abundance and its robustness and all of this, like, these values that I really value. And then I realized that the oak savannah, the dehesa, like to have an entire broad acre landscape established to oak savannah that's kind of totemic and symbolic toward the kind of human environment i want to help create or at least i just want to see i want to be in i want to live in that kind of place or 
close to it. You know, to have those kind of systems are the very kinds of systems that embody the wisdom of of a people that you know gets its foundations right first and thinks ahead in in you know multi generational terms and um, yeah and and they're just beautiful as well. Mm-hmm. These semi-domesticated places, you know, like they're, I've, I've spoken about this before, that to me it's like I don't want to be, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a very urbane dweller, like I don't like being in cities, but I don't like being in wilderness for too long either. Like that's not our home. That's not where we're from. Humans are a keystone species and we create our environment. We affect it like the way a beaver does. It actually creates its own environment in a way and in doing so has a beneficial and, and quite pronounced trickle-down effect on the environment around it. Well, we're the same. It's just that we've for- forgotten regenerative principles. Mm. Um, so, the, like you know, the human impact on the environment doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be incredibly positive so long as we remember these regenerative regenerative principles and the landscapes that we create when we do that are by default our they they feel good they look good that's where we want to be and the dehaser is like the 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 dehaser as a semi-domesticated broad-scale oak savanna to me is just the perfect example of that it's like a human environment that's still in incorporates the best of wilderness and it's the best of humans too right applying our impact to something that is life-giving and regenerative correct yeah agreed and how long do oak trees live usually does i'm sure it's a range some of the larger trees you can live for well, hundreds of years and if you coppice them it extends their lifetime oh lifespan interesting as well. And because in England, because they, England is an island, they had to manage their forestry systems very, very well. You know, they had, they recognised relatively early that they had finite forestry resources. So they, they developed these systems like of, like the hedgerow systems where their land was partitioned off from one another each parcel was partitioned by a hedgerow which was like a living fence of all different species that would provide all sorts of yields including firewood and food and whatnot although the the history has more to do with the church and 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 whatnot but anyway the other systems i like the coppice agroforestry systems rotational coppice systems where you'd have like a stand of of forest and you'd have like you know eight or so oak per hectare and they would be grown to these big beautiful tall saw logs and then underneath them you'd have chestnut coming up and underneath them you'd have something else and they were all worked together in this beautiful coppice system mosaic rotational coppice system and uh doing so the coppicing of those trees somehow extends their life it kind of hits a reset button and you can have tree growing five times older than it would otherwise. So that would be a really valuable technique to replicate. Oh, it's, it's yeah, it, we should be paying more attention to it. And I'd point people toward the work of Ben Law, 
who wrote the book The Woodland Way and other associated um, releases. He's a, a coppice chestnut. He a, a coppice worker, a forestry worker, traditional technique on a chestnut plantation in England. So, um, Byron, what about medicinal uses of oak? Do you know what part of the tree is used medicinally? And tell us a bit about that. It's the tannins. Like, it's mostly the tannins. I don't know about the medicine so much, but oak were, were said to be this tree that yields three fruit. And the, so you've got the timber and the three fruit of the oak. So the one fruit, obviously, is the acorn. But then the, the second fruit are the gall of yes. the oak. Mm-hmm. Right, so you've got these galls, which is kind of like a plant's response to a pathogen, like an insect or a wasp or something laying its eggs in it. It's like kind of like almost like scar tissue that builds up around the, the, the infection. And in... Oaks, the, these galls become in highly concentrated with tannins and, and so much so that they were used for extracting tannins and they were also used for creating ink. So they had this kind of black, dark ink that they would use to write with their, their quills. Um, I should also add as well that there are other species of acorn like the Quercus macrolepsis which is really interesting. People should check that out. The Quercus macrolepsis. Have a look at the the um, the cap on the acorn. It's this incredible. It really it it quite clearly shows the potential of its relationship to a chestnut. So it's kind of like a big spiky burr, but the spikes aren't sharp. They're kind of f- flat. But those. It's funny because the macrolepsis acorn is one of the best low tannin acorns as well. I should have added that to my list earlier. But the cap is so high in tannins that it's used. It was used to uh, leach tannins from to tan leather and wow, whatnot. Wow, that's amazing! And I know oak galls too. I'm actually collecting some, or was, um, and you can use them for natural dyeing mm. and as a mordant. So it helps right. the dye set into the fabric. I see. Yes. Okay. And then you've got the third fruit of the oak, and. Um, the, I used to notice this on my uh, the oak I grew up in, so I forget what time of year it is. I think it's late summer. You get these sugars accumulating on the leaves, and people would, you know, like have you ever touched a deciduous oak leaf and it's kind of sticky? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's kind of like a sugary kind of like honey, maple syrupy veneer on these leaves, and um, people would take the leaves and soak the leaves in water to make a kind of sugary water and then they'd you know drink it or make an alcoholic beverage out of it. In fact, oak leaf wine was pretty common as well, but not, I don't think it was from those, those sugars. Oak leaf wine was they would pick the young spring leaves with lots of um, sugars in them and use them to make wines out of. I never have heard about that. So, um, Byron, another aspect of oaks that we haven't touched on is the symbolism or the cultural significance of these trees. Could you share some of that with our listeners today? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not sure what the symbolism, how the symbolism extends outside of Europe, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was very similar. But the, the, like I mentioned before, oaks 
in, in, in traditional European symbolism have long symbolized robustness and abundance. You know, this ability, this, this, the grand oak, the old oak, this kind of like Im, immutable, unmovable force with its deep roots in the ground, this ancientness, this kind of like king of the forest kind of vibe <clears throat> ruled by Jupiter in, in, in the, uh, those astrological systems of correspondence. It's ruled by Jupiter. It's, like, it's good luck. It's very positive. It, it, it's, it provides. It's bountiful. And wisdom, I think, too, right? Like, yeah. wise oak. Yeah, from its age. And an and association with Jupiter and Zeus and Thor because of it being struck by lightning so often. Um, so yeah, the, and the, the Druids, like the pre, we, it's, it's, it's fascinating. We have to understand that pre-Christian Europe where a tree worshiping might not be the right word, but what revering culture and that the Ogham, which is the 22 letter sacred alphabet of the, what we call Druidic cult, uh, Celtic cultures, each 22 letters was named for a, a tree, uh, the, the oak just being one of them. But dru, druid actually means daru with, which is daru is one of the Indo-European root words for, for what we call oak and is also, I think, etymologically linked to the word door. So daru is oak and wid means one who knows. So the druids, the Daruids, those who know the oak, these sacred, these sacred groves throughout pre-Christian Europe, you know, they were the churches of the of the ancestors of European peoples. We're very, you know, the European peoples were as as indigenous as anyone before the before the Romans come along. I would I direct people to a book written by a woman called Lie. De Angelis, that's her name. It's L Y, mm -hmm. is her first name, and then De Angelis, D E Angelis, like Los Angeles. Um, and she wrote a book called Prittany, P R I T E N I, and that is the root word of Britain, and it's about the Roman conquest of Britain, and gives an an idea of the type of people that that the British. And very likely, much of the Western European people, Celtic peoples, and Teutonic peoples, the Germanic Teutons in the north northwest were uh, before the Roman conquest. Um, it's all tied together, you know. You've got this this growing appreciation for that as well at the moment. I'm I'm noticing around the world, kind of the European the European collective identity is asking itself, who are we and what were we before and what was this big event that changed us? And yeah, so that it kind of, to me, the oak is a symbol of our indigenousness as Western European people and um, the nobility that comes along with that. And of course, you know, you, you can have a people who are very, very deeply connected to their landscape and incredibly learned, you know, and, and um, 
appreciating higher learning and higher wisdom in the forms of the kind of mystery schools of the Western Hermetic traditions that once upon a time were actually in the ground and alive and, and were and working and be very fierce as well, very fierce warriors. Yes, I read about that. Is there anything else you want to add about the sacred aspect of Oaks? I think I've I've said it all. I mean, you've got we've got the the druidic stuff and then the the symbolism and then the way I feel about them, what they represent and using them to move forward. Like to me that they are the symbol of the type of systems that I would like humanity to see implementing and like for instance I just I was just watching TV this morning and there's a, a Australian scientific science program called Catalyst and they've got this episode coming on tomorrow about the future of food and it was all test tubes and laboratory grown meat and hydroponic vegetables and nothing about regenerative agriculture or key line or permaculture or holistic management or any call to a wiser land management as a response to crisis or not even as a response to crisis, just being good stewards. You know, it's like, how are we going to fix it? Well, you know, Tesla cars and hydroponic lamb. It's like, no, that's not it. I'm sorry. Like I know everyone's got their idea of what the future is going to look like and I don't know what it is going to look like, but I can, I've got a fairly confident idea of what, I think it, we should be focusing on, and that's not to be Luddites and throw out any like technology. And mo- I mean, it's the, you can't fight progress, right? But let's start with our foundations. And I have an axiom that I live by that ecology is the foundation of agriculture and that agriculture is the foundation of culture because you're not going to have a culture unless you can – feed yourself or clothe yourself, you know, food, fiber, energy, shelter, water, all those things that agriculture means. And you're not going to have an agriculture if you don't have an ecology because it is an agri- – agriculture is an ecological enterprise. It's the human interface with the environment. And then – so let's if, – if we're going into this future where it's increasingly uncertain, we don't know what's going on, there's all these vectors appearing and issues and crises popping up, on the one hand, it's all very negative. On the other hand, we have all these amazing technologies, which could be positive or negative, depending on their application. But let's let's just say, like, okay, even if we're moving forward in some kind of tech future, let's take care of the foundations, the ecology and the agriculture. So to me, like, the ideal human future isn't going to be all stainless steel buildings and flying cars and and they may they may be there and it's not going to even be like really novel exotic food production technologies building buildings with algae on them producing electricity or you know growing meat and test tubes it's it's going to be like good old-fashioned plant and animal systems on well-designed land just good old biological systems but done in a way that encompasses everything we've learnt so far through trial and error and tragedy to, to create these broad-scale, human-friendly, environmentally regenerative agricultural systems. That's what the oak represents to me. And the oak, it sounds like, has a role in these systems. 
It, it does. Yeah. So Byron, if people want to find, um, read more about you and read more of your articles and learn about your work, where can they find you online? My, my website is the primary place, which is oaktreedesigns.com.au. And there's contact and there's a bio and there's articles and media and that kind of stuff. And yeah, I do consultancy and design and education. I'm based in Southwestern Australia, but I'm very fortunate that my work takes me around Australia and uh, the world at large, in fact, which I'm very grateful for. You, listeners may have picked up on the fact that I have a particular interest in the Mediterranean climate regions of the world, including the Mediterranean basin, southern Europe, North Africa, California, South Africa, and parts of Chile, and here where I'm from, southwestern and southeastern Australia. That's me. So Byron, we're, we're um, at the end of our time together. Is there anything else you'd want listeners to know about Oaks or your work? Not really. Just send me money. <laughs> me too. Hashtag send me money. Hashtag send oh cash. <laughs> PayPal. We both take yes. PayPal. I'm okay. sick of eating acorns. <laughs> Thank you so much, Byron, for joining um, us today to talk about Oaks. You're welcome. The pleasure was all mine. Thanks, Jill. A special thanks to my good friend Jill Cloutier at The Plant Report for allowing me to rebroadcast this wonderful interview. I highly encourage you to check out her show if you haven't already at theplantreport.libsyn.com and also her other show, sustainableworldradio.com, where you can find over a decade worth of interviews on some of the most fascinating topics about the natural world that you never knew about. We'll also be featuring some of the outstanding episodes from each other's shows every so often, and even doing a few guest-hosted episodes on one another's podcasts from time to time. So stay tuned for more collaborations. And of course, if you're a producer in the regenerative media space, such as a podcaster, streamer, or video content producer, we would love to hear from you. Soon, we'll be announcing the dates for the RMA Professional Development Conference online in October. I'll be posting more information on how to get involved when we open up requests for registrations in July and registration opens officially in August. Now later on, to close out the year, we're also going to shine a light on the people and the projects that made a difference in 2022. In December, we're going to award the RMA Prize and more information on that will come out when nominations open up in September. Now, if along the way you have any questions about the Regenerative Media Alliance, these calls, the conference, or the prize, feel free to get in touch with me directly at info at regenerativeskills.com. And that's it for our show this week. So remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and the Regenerative Media Alliance and I will be right by your side along the way. <laughs>